Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Olivier Theatre. Congratulations on braving the tube strikes and the resultant traffic jams that have uh, brought you here this evening. Um, my name's Mark Leipacker. I'm a director and also the author of a book called Catching the Light, which is about Simon's working partnership with Sam Mendes on their eight previous collaborations prior to King Lear. So it's a genuine pleasure for me to be here for the third of these Talking Lear platforms to talk to Lear himself. Um, he actually knows more about my than I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, I suppose to begin with, the, the f let's, let's start at the beginning and the, the approach to play, Lear. I, I think this has been reasonably well publicised now, but would you like to take us through the conversation that happened after Galileo? Yes. Um, the, um, <clears throat> funny enough, there, in one of the sort of pre-ambles in the papers that you know, was anticipating this production, uh, it said it had been in development for years. That's actually not true, of course. Um, but it was first mentioned when I did Galileo on this stage, and Sam came to see it, and I played Galileo at the end of his life in the play, becomes a very, very old and frail and very angry man. And Sam said he looked at me and thought, oh, I, I think probably he should be thinking about Lear now. So we're in the bar afterwards, we were having a pint, and he said... Uh, I think we should do Lear before it's too late. That was the... <laughs> <clears throat> and I was 45. Um, actually, we'll talk about the age of Lear later, because I've got some interesting facts, um, which you probably all know. But um, anyway, 45, and I said, oh, for God's sake, um, not yet. And so it was ignored. Uh, so that was eight years ago. And uh, then he came saw Much Do About Nothing, which I did for Nick. Uh, again on this stage, we were in the bar afterwards, and he said, I really think we should think about Lear again. I said, well, and I've always done this. I always thought, well, if you think I can play it, then fine, because I trust your taste, as I trust Nick's. Um, I'm not a very good caster of myself. So I thought, well, OK, do you want to mention it to Nick? And um, Sam mentioned it to Nick, I mentioned it to Nick, and uh, uh, we started talking about it then. And then for various reasons, um, do with what I was doing and also, of course, what Sam rather famously was doing in, with Bond and things. Um, it got postponed and postponed and postponed. But eventually we, we, we found the date and uh, uh, we've done it. Uh, the, other, the other big question, and uh, it does, again, lead on to lots more uh, interesting subjects, is the theatre to do it in, because Sam had never directed in this theatre. Um, this beautiful, beautiful theatre... Um, of which I am inordinately fond. And uh, it's tough and it's difficult, and all the actors who are in Lear will, will agree with me, it's tough, it's difficult, but my God, it's a beautiful theatre to play. Um, and uh, so he, uh, I, I hope I'm not um, misrepresenting him, but he, uh, he said originally, what about Littleton, where he'd done The Sea and uh, the birthday party and various... We, we, we're not really allowed to do it in the Cottesloe as it was then, uh, because Nick quite rightly thinks that these very big plays probably should have a, a, a more public profile. Because um, the Cottesloe would have been lovely, of course. Um, so I said, well, OK, well, what, why don't we risk it and do it in the Olivier and do an epic production? And let's have a big storm. And... Uh, and there have been so many brilliant, brilliant studio productions of this play over the last few years, like Ian, obviously, and Derek, and people like that, that I 
So I thought, okay, come on. Come on, let's risk, risk it. Let's, let's, let's see if we can do it. So eventually Nick said, okay, let's do it in the Olivier. And the, the plan was always for the production to be epic in scope in terms of cosmos, in terms of the well, universe? There, was, there, was, there were various, various um, threads to this, this idea. But, uh, the, I've always been, uh, over the last few years, uh, as Lear was beginning to enter into my brain, I kept on thinking, it's interesting that uh, when we talk about Hamlet, we very often talk about the political environment of Hamlet. Spy state, uh, uh, and this is a man who did the most famously apolitical Hamlet in, <laughs> in recent years. Absolutely no politics in it at all. Um, fascinating. You know, it's a fascinating world to study. Um, but I don't hear people talk about the politics of Lear very often. I hear a lot about Lear and his daughters, Lear and the family, uh, Gloucester and his sons, Gloucester and his family. But I, I, years and years ago, I when I was a, a teenager, I saw the Peter Brook film, and I've since see, seen the Kudzinsev uh, film, can't say that, um, both of which are very politicised films. And, I, and the image I had, the first image I mentioned to Sam was from Peter Brook's film of, of the roll. do you remember, they were rolling uh, carts with Goneril and Regan rushing across the country to try and shore up alliances. And it's set in the sort of medieval... Britain, so these, these great wooden wheels, and they're thundering over very bumpy ground, and there's a sense of urgency and a sense of desperation. And I thought, God, isn't that interesting? The play is about as much about that as it is about family, and the idea of people rushing around the country in a state of potential civil war. And I, and I, so going to the Olivier was also partly to try and, and this became for Sam a very important part of his idea of the play that it should it's a famous play for having you know a family personal level a national level a cosmic level uh, an individual level um, and that's what makes it one of the greatest plays ever written and just that one level seemed to be the one that Sam wanted to really put on stage which is of course why we have 30 marvellous supernumeraries who come on and represent military power. Um, I, I, could, I could go on, I, do you want me to go on about this? Because actually there is a... <laughs> shall I bore you some more? I think um, everyone, I think enthralled no, no. rather than... Well, rather than well the interesting thing about that, the interesting thing about that, having started with this, this idea that <clears throat> what the hell is that first scene about? What, what's it about? What's he doing? I, I, I still don't quite know what he's doing. I mean, uh, I've got an idea in my head that he might think it's a good idea to divide his kingdom into three, but I can't really, really make it work because it seems daft. Um, and to give one-third of the way to a foreign power seems to be politically suicidal to me. So I don't... Qu I he starts the play... Daft is putting it mildly. He starts the play with a catastrophic, criminal mistake. It's criminal what he does. And Kent says to him, this is evil. This is evil what you're doing. And he does it uh, 
I don't know for what reason at the very beginning of the scene, but certainly by the time he, uh, Cordelia's not playing the game, he's doing a division of the kingdom out of a fit of pique and vanity, and uh, a man who's been in absolute power for far too long for his own sanity, uh, perhaps with, with an, a sense that his own brain is beginning to, to fail, so there's fear and there's uh, hurt uh, in that mix. But he divides the kingdom into two, between two men who he knows and says don't like each other. It, it, it seems to me to be absolutely criminal. Um, and Gloucester in the next scene, interesting enough, um, talks not about Cordelia at all. He mentions her once. He says the division between father and child, but not even by name. His main concern is the banishment of Kent and the division of the kingdom between Cornwall and Albany. In other words, that is what the scene is principally about. Um, on top of that, we have a family problem. But I suppose, you know, Cordelia could come back. I mean, you know, it's not irreparable, his relationship with Cordelia. What is irreparable is giving the kingdom away. And um, I think that creates a whole series of interesting questions about uh, sympathy for him. And uh, we, we only ever see him. I don't know of any other character except for perhaps Leontes in Shakespeare, which does it, who, who makes his mistake very early on. So we never ever see him as the king that Kent loves, as the king that Gloucester loves, as the king that Edgar respects. We only ever see him making this catastrophic mistake. Um, consequently, sympathy is a very interesting thing in the play because frankly he's horrible <laughs> and and you know there are other elements like the way he treats Goneril is simply unspeakable unspeakable what he does to his eldest daughter so we never see him we never see him as this marvelous great king now somehow it would be wrong if we didn't feel sorry for him at the end so that little finesse is quite tricky, I think. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I believe you. Um, the, while, we're, while we're talking about that, that first scene, let, let's look at that a little more in depth, and we, we can go into preparation in other areas later on. But uh, you've talked before about that first moment being sort of a living will, and that was an yes. idea that you arrived at <laughs> in the scene. Could you explain Well, that? I mean, this is, this is part of the sort of um, trying to explain it as a rational man's decision. Um, I th I, my, my version of it is that he comes on and he thinks, well, before I die, uh, what I will do is I'll make sure my daughters all know what they're going to get when I die. So it's a sort of living will. Uh, Cordelia, of course, throws a spanner in the works by refusing to play. Uh, I, I, as I say I, uh, before, I don't think it's necessarily a sensible idea, but at least he'll still be king. And then I think, I think once Cordelia has refused to play, he then does this sort of rather improvised thing about um, you two share it up and I don't care how it's, it's divided, you sort that out, you know. Um, no, as you start a civil war and, and, and I'll go around with a hundred knights and that's a sort of improvised moment and then I'll, I'll keep, you can still call me king but I won't do any work. And I, I think all that is, is part of of the improvisation and also part of, which we'll get onto later, his condition, which I think is, I think that's what makes him 
where the seeds of sympathy should come is that he's, he's well aware of his being ill or the begins, beginnings of illness, which is why I, I have a little shake in my hand. because. Well, uh, well let's talk a little bit about that, that now as we strayed onto that area. You, you have a, a, a number of doctor siblings, and, and I know that, um, that one of them provided you access to a very particular strand of research that I think... Actually, that was my nephew. Oh, excuse He's coming to the end of his training as a doctor at Barts. And um, I've never done this before. And, um, this might be in the programme, but I've never done this before with a Shakespeare play, which is I've never thought, when I did Iago or Hamlet, I didn't sit there thinking, oh, I really must look at grief or I really must look at uh, jealousy um, in a sort of research type way. But in this one, I thought, I bet, I bet Shakespeare, being the acute observer of human nature of the years, will have studied old men. So I thought, I'm going to do a bit of research that's sort of within the play. I, I do lots of research, funnily enough, about... I love things like publication dates and, <laughs> and all the anarchy stuff. I love all that. But um, <laughs> this is the first time I sort of took a subject that was actually within the play and decided I needed to look at it properly. So anyway, I was, I was at my sister's for the weekend, um, for Sunday lunch, and my nephew was there, and he's, I said, tell me about dementia. And, um, and in fact, actually, he happened to be doing his geriatric bit at that point. Um, and, uh, you know, I found out various bits of information. I'm sure they're probably not accurate, but they're now in my head. There are three types of dementia. And then we found this article by, and I'm afraid I can't remember his name, uh, a particular psychoanalyst uh, about analysing Lear, which is a sort of party game that psychoanalysts do. They, you can find, you know, essays about Ophelia, and, and uh, it's quite fun. Um, anyway, his analysis of Lear was this one called Lewy body dementia, which is uh, not Alzheimer's and not vascular dementia, and it seemed to fit rather neatly into uh, what Lear seems to be suffering. It, and there, there are various things like hallucinations, which is a particular sign of it. It, it goes in state, uh, Alzheimer's tends to be a, a I believe, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it tends to be a slow decline, whereas Lewy body goes in stages. Lewy body is very quick. Um, hallucinations, uh, and the hallucinations are always... Uh, Frightening. You don't see angels at the end of your bed, you see dogs. Which, of course, Lear sees. Um, and I thought, and oh, that's fascinating, and it has a particular, it's sort of linked with Parkinson's, it has a particular uh, shake of the hand, um, which they call rolling the pill, I don't know quite why. Anyway, so Ben, my nephew, started me off, and then I said to my brother, who's a consultant in... in the West Country, I said, would you happen to have a, a geriatrician who would be willing to speak to me? So I popped up, he said, yes, Debbie. So I popped up to see Debbie in her lunch hour, and bless her, she, she took me through all the, all the areas that I was interested in, which includes physical things, wandering, of course, which Leah does, um, uh, shame, which Kent quite specifically says he's suffering from shame. Uh, and I'd love to talk about that because I think that's a very interesting part of the play. Uh, and uh, anger, obviously. And it's not, it's not a nice illness. Um, anyway, she took me all through that. And, uh, and, and uh, the one thing she didn't say that happens very often is guilt, interestingly enough. 
That, that doesn't seem to happen with her patients, but it's to do, it's to do, the shame is to do with awareness of how you've just behaved rather than a lifetime of misbehaving. <laughs> but it's fascinating, it's fascinating. It's the first time I've ever done it, isn't it? <coughs> it's not a blueprint. It doesn't, you know, Shakespeare doesn't play all the games. And of course, you've got this funny double time scheme in Lear, which, as in a lot of his plays, is that, you know, logically, Edgar becomes a very convincing um, madman and uh, homeless person within hours, and Lear becomes mad within hours. But you, as all with these plays, you, there's a sort of sense in which this, is, this is goes over a long, as with Othello, a long span of time. So, Let's stick with the preparation for the role. We'll, we'll get into the, the other areas and later scenes a, a bit later on. But um, in terms of the, the look of Lear and, and going back to this dictator and that political landscape of the play, um, Sam encouraging you to shave your head as you had done with Iago and to really bring out the, the brute. And I noticed that you've graduated from upending chairs in the cherry orchard to turning tables over now. And uh, I, just to look at that physical strength and the dragon and his wrath and, and to talk about that part of the design of him. Well, the hair's quite interesting, actually, because Sam obviously regarded that as a shortcut for me. <laughs> he said, just shave your head, because honestly, uh, you did it with Richard III and you did it for Iago. <laughs> and, it'll get you into the right sort of mood, which, which actually, of course, it does, because actually I have a fine head of hair. And um, um, unlike the rest of my family, we're going bald. Um, so, yes, it's all rather flowy when we started rehearsals. Anyway, that came off. Um, the uh, um, sewing the tables over, actually, um, Sam has now sort of honed a type of rehearsal process, which, which I think is extremely... Um, hospitable to actors, and uh, which is that we, we were there all the time. Actually, I think he said at the beginning of rehearsals that we weren't going to be all the, there all the time, and I think there were a couple of days when there wasn't a full call, but for most of that rehearsal period, we were there all the time, all of us. And, um, you know, we sit around the table, uh, first of all, and go through the play, and and as you, for those of you who are familiar with Lear, which I'm sure is a large proportion of you, things like the fifth act has been considerably uh, changed. There's no duel between Edgar and Edmund, for instance. Uh, and so we talked about that, and we, and we, but we're all around the table, so at least we're all reading from the same Bible by the end of the, that process. And then what he does is he, and he sort of started this, I think, with Uncle Vanya, which was, we did uh, 10 years ago now. Um, and I think he wanted a Russian feel, so he put lots of rugs on the floor and, and, and a circle of sort of armchairs and stools and sofas all the way around, so it felt rather like a, a living room. Um, but he sort of kept it as a, as a way of, of uh, uh, rehearsing, which means that you, you don't... It's quite scary going to the circle for the first time. But as Tom, who plays Edgar, pointed out yesterday at the platform yesterday, it does, it does become easy very quickly. And you have all the people watching you, and uh, anybody's contribution is welcome. Um, and uh, up to a point. And, uh, and the thing is that what Sam does is that you, he just does a scene in many different ways. And then what he does, personally, is go home and I think and just sort of computes it. So two weeks later, he'll say, let's get rid of the chairs and the... the and start putting it on its feet as it, as it were for the stage and then he'll say do you remember when 
you threw the tables over? Or do you remember when, you know, you screamed when you were waking up in bed, you know, and uh, you'll go back to that. So it's, it's a sort of storing up a set of options for him, really, and for us. So that's how that, that works. But also the 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 the, jet the physicality of the performance. Oh, how did uh, how did that arrive? The sort of well, forward head and the. Well, we cut the line that he's eighty. But obviously, he has to be an old man. And I suppose I was just thinking, there's I I I, I just have to work out a way. I had the dementia stuff in the physical stuff in my head, so the second half, um, when he's very little. Uh, was sort of already brewing, and then uh, I, I thought I'd just have to be older. I got sent an email by um, an academic called James Shapiro last week, who saw the play, a New York academic who teaches at uh, Columbia. And uh, Burbage, for whom Shakespeare wrote this role, was 38. Isn't that amazing? And in fact, he found... He, was doing, he became rather interested in the age thing because lots of people said I was too young, which I'm sort of not compared to a lot of Lear's recently. Um, but uh, he, he said, actually, he found out that almost no... He could find no actor from Shakespeare's time who was continuing to act after 50, except for Burbage, interesting enough, who died um, still acting. But Edward Alain, his great rival, retired when he was 30. Anyway, that's a parenthesis. So a lot of, lot of old men being played by very young men. Um, and I know they died younger, and, uh, but even so, there, there were 80-year-olds around. Um, <coughs> fascinating. Where were we? I can't remember. <laughs> the physicality. Oh, the physicality. So yeah, so the bull, the bull, the bull slouch and the, and the, yeah, I mean, that's just me trying to be old, right? older. Um, you have, of course, played Leah once before. Um, I bring that up lightly, but, um, but um, my reason for bringing that up is to talk about what your preconceptions were of the play before you began approaching the role. So after Sam's offer and you actually began reading it, what preconception-smashing moments were there for you? When he means I've played Lear before, <laughs> I was 17. <laughs> it was the unknown definitive performance of Lear. <laughs> Actually, I don't remember anything about it. Although, I got a photograph on the, on the press night, I got sent a photograph of me doing it from somebody who... And the, the beard and the wig cost 50 quid. It's <laughs> a lot of money. Uh, from Bristolvic. Um, and I don't really remember anything about it. My brother, who played Albany, remembers a little bit more about it, but I don't really remember anything about it. Although, oddly, we were talking about this just before we came on tonight with some of the cast, but oddly, I remember, I remember the words more clearly of Lear than I do of anything else I've done. It's to do, it's to do with being young, isn't it? But I remember reading the first scene thinking, I know this, actually. Uh, this, this is in my brain. Preconceptions. <clears throat> I think the big one, and this is associated with being uh, an angry old man, is the last scenes of reconciliation. I think that was the, bi the, big, the big one was what we call the hospital scene, um, when he wakes up in bed. And 
the more I looked at it, the more uncomfortable that seemed. I'd always seen it, heard of it, or had a conception of it as being a scene of reconciliation. Although at last his daughter's back, and you know, big hugs and kisses and crying, and we're, we're fine. Um, and it was Stanley who was playing Kent who, who pointed out, and in fact, I think originally in our cut script this particular section wasn't in, but I, I became fascinated by it. And I mentioned the word already. He said, talking to uh, Gary, who, who's playing what we call the surveillance officer, which is the sort of part that you see with Kent a lot, uh, <clears throat> and he says, how is, called, how is uh, Leah? And he says, he doesn't want to meet his daughter. He doesn't want to see her. He really doesn't want to see her. He's ashamed of seeing her. And I thought, oh, oh, right. Of course, of course. He knows, as he says in his own words, I'm not, in, I'm not in my perfect mind. And he knows he's done something terrible. He doesn't want to see her. And he wakes up in bed, and there she is. Uh, interesting enough, I mean, it goes two ways, because she also, and I think Olivia would agree with this, doesn't, she's frightened of him. <clears throat> Seeing old people in bed, old, ill people in bed, is a, 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 your dad or your mum, it's a very, very distressing thing to see. You know, as a child, I thought old people slept up in their chairs fully dressed. That's what <laughs> old people did. To see them in bed in a hospital is a very distressing thing. And the last time she saw him, of course, was when he was in the sort of plenitude of his power. <coughs> and um, uh, so she herself is also wary. And the doctor has to say, please, please. You wake him. No, no, you wake him. No, you wake him. Draw near. Come on. And, uh, and then he, his first lines are, I am bound upon a wheel of fire. And I thought, this isn't a reconciliation, is it? This is really uncomfortable and difficult. And he doesn't know where he is. He's angry. Half the words in that first speech when he wakes up are, you're, you're, you're treating me badly. And if, another, if I saw another person being treated like that, I would weep. Don't treat me like this. I shouldn't be here. Blah, blah, blah. I refuse to look at you. I don't know who you are. And then finally she says, look at me, look at me. And that's when he says, I'm a foolish, fond old man. But in other words, <clears throat> what I thought was this marvellously poetic uh, reckon, uh, meeting is not. It's the beginning of something. It's the beginning. He asks her to forgive him, uh, which she doesn't reply to, interestingly enough. Um, but it's the beginning. But it's not some marvellous uh, process. There are f four scenes that Leah has in that second half, the second of which is, uh, the th third of which, rather, the hospital's the second, the third of which is, the, the, I think, the most difficult scene for me, which I still quite, am quite located, which is when he says to her, let's go away to prison, and we'll be like two birds. And it's a difficult scene because he's under pressure from being taken prisoner, so presumably there are people around. In our, in our case, they, they sort of move away and they have other things to do, but in other words, there's a pressure for him not to speak. But Shakespeare gives him this beautiful speech, and it is beautiful. But it's nonsense. 
It's nonsense. He's got, his daughter's just said to him, for your sake I've been made prisoner. That doesn't sound like a particularly forgiving thing to say. She does say, if it hadn't been for you, I would be able to cope with it. But, you know, she's a good girl. But, you know, <coughs> she's not in the best place. He does this thing about saying to his married daughter, who is also happens to be Queen of France, I know, let's go away to prison and we'll spend the rest of our life there. And you're th- you're, every time I think of what Cordelia must be thinking, it must be, I can't think of anything worse. <laughs> what are you talking about? Stuck with my senile father for the rest of my life in a, in a prison cell. <clears throat> so now there's the second scene of the, reconcili- the reconciliation is bonkers. The next scene, she's dead. So the great, the great thing that changed in my head about, about this play was the fact that they don't get the chance that's what makes it so unbelievably devastating. They never get a chance to really reconcile, talk to each other, forgive each other. And of course, Shakespeare, <clears throat> later in his life, in the, in the last plays, became very, very um, uh, concerned about the nature of forgiveness. You know, in The Tempest, in The Winter's Tale, uh, particularly, uh, people are forgiven, and famously in the Tempest, they don't reply. You know, Prospero forgives his brother who doesn't reply. Famously in the Winter's Tale, Leontes asks forgiveness of his resurrected wife, and she doesn't speak to him. So Shakespeare, Shakespeare knew, as we all know, that forgiveness isn't a question of just saying, I forgive you, and you say thank you, and then it's all as, as it was. This is a, a, a fractured and uh, damaged relationship that needs time, and they're not given time. I, th- I think that's devastating. I really think that's devastating. Um, as you can probably tell, we wanted Simon to be able to speak freely, so I hope we're not spoiling any of the production for anybody. If, oh, if, um, yes, I'm if, sorry. If, we <laughs> <laughs> if indeed we are, then this next question may... Be, lead us onto a sort of spoiler alert moment. So, if you're intending to watch the production in future, then put your fingers in your ears now. But um, to, to follow through, <laughs> to follow through um, on that topic of madness, the person with whom he uh, and his awareness of his own predicament and his illness, the person with whom he communicates most in the production about that is th- is the fool. I would argue. So, to talk a little bit about how intimate that's made and how, how much of a confession that's made, why to the fool, and to lead us through to the fool's... What happens to him? Demise. Um, <coughs> the, uh, you know, one of the most beautiful scenes in the play, of course, is the scene... Uh, we, we've just met the fool, and, and Lear is delighted to have him back, I think. He, he went away after Cordelia was banished. He's obviously an ally of Cordelia's uh, in some way. Uh, but Lear's pleased to have him back. And then Lear does this, as I say, this terrible, terrible, which we'll, we'll get on to later, the daughters, this terrible attack on Goneril. I mean, it's... On the first preview, one of the cast got a, a text message from a friend in the audience saying, that attack on Goneril is way out of order. And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's way out of order. 
Um, uh, anyway, so uh, I think Leah at that point in this version is sort of thinking, oh, Jesus, um, that was more vicious even than I uh, anticipated or wanted even. So he has that very beautiful scene in which Lear doesn't, is almost speaking in monosyllables. It's the most beautifully written scene. He's so clever, isn't he? Just, you know, knows, yes, why, you know, he, and the fool is, and they're waiting to travel to Regan's, having left Goneril's in a huff. And um, uh, so the fool's trying to keep up his spirits in some way. Um, and th then there's a very famous line, oh, let me not be mad. Not mad, sweet home. And, uh, and I'm sure I'm not the only Lear that thinks that should, that should be done straight to the fool. It's not a, an internal thing, it's not a, a cry to the heavens. It's a, a genuine thing to the only man who could possibly keep him sane. Uh, just please stop me. Anything you can do to stop me losing my mind. Uh, very, very moving idea that a friend could do that. And of course, after the famous, oh, reason not the need speech, it's the, f the fool that he talks to. He says, oh, fool, I shall go mad. You know, it's, it's, that's, the, that's the man he can talk to about it, and, and, and he can't talk to anybody else about it. In fact, I think in our version, he's slightly embarrassed to talk to the fool about it. It's, it's, he's not a man that would, be, would have spent his life... Uh, spilling his innermost thoughts onto other people. And um, anyway, the, uh, in our version, this is the spoiler alert, famously, of course, the fool disappears. Uh, and there, there are reasons for that that have been well, well explained, or there are reasons that people put forward for that, uh, partly because, of course, Lear has now lost his mind, and therefore the fool has no function uh, within the play. Uh, and then there's a very famous line right at the very end when he's holding the dead Cordelia, my poor fool is hanged, uh, which some people have thought it could refer to uh, Cordelia and the, and the idea that Cordelia and fool were the same actor. All those are very interesting but not particularly useful ideas, I think, in the sense that actually the truth of the matter is that he lost his function in the play, therefore Shakespeare just got rid, you know, just didn't write anything more for him. But it's, <coughs> you know, dare I say it, say it a little a weakness <clears throat> in an otherwise almost perfect play. <laughs> uh, heresy. Uh, that he doesn't, that that major character is just let, left to float off in some sort of... Uh, and we talked lots of, you know, I, uh, my, my original thought was that he should hang himself, that he has no... The world is so grotesquely distorted by the time he disappears. You know, the next scene we see is a man having his eyes gouged out. This is not a nice place anymore, if it ever was. Uh, it's a horrible, distorted world of violence and grief and anger. And uh, I thought perhaps he should hang himself, you know, that it wasn't... Um... And then Sam said, what if Lear kills him himself? And in his... You know, almost as a sign that his mind has completely gone. So that's what, that's what I do, I beat him to death. Um, and 
It's horrible. I mean, the, it's, um, it's a, that the couple of occasions when, when Lear in his madness, uh, you know, in that rather beautiful madness, what we call the mad scene with Gloucester and Edgar, there, and he's very affectionate to Gloucester and, you know, all sorts of things, but there are moments in his madness when he, when he repeats the word kill, 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 when you sort of sense that this is the old Lear rearing its head. This is a man who, who probably, as ruler, would have at least authorised the death of people, and he's not squeamish about that at all. Um, and he has a violent nature, and uh, the beating up the fool is entirely un uh, unintentional, but uh, he kills him. And I was talking to Stan when we came off today, actually, uh, uh, and knowing that I'd probably be talking about this today, I said to Stanley, what? Because I can't, I'm asleep by the time he has to cope with the dead fool. And I said, what, 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 do you, what do you do? Do you react? And he says, well, I check. I check that the, he's lying in a bath, the fool. And I check, I check that I go to look at him and I see a man who quite patently has had his head smashed in and is dying or dead. Um, and then the, the most important thing is to get Lear settled so that he doesn't do anything else um, violent. Um, so it's a, it's a difficult one for Stanley and Stephen, who plays Gloucester, and for Tom, who plays Edgar, to negotiate, because, of course, it's not in the text. So they have to negotiate this idea of... They're, they're required to ignore the, the fool, ultimately to ignore the fool's death because there are greater priorities, one of which is to get Lear out and to Dover and to his daughter and safe. Um, and I, I talked to Stanley, as I said, today, and I said, I suppose in this awful world, which it's now becoming, the death of a minor functionary of an old man, a mad king is not significant. And I think we've moved into that sort of world. I saw the Simon Sharma um, story of the Jews on DVD over the weekend, and uh, there was a picture of the Warsaw uh, ghetto, and there was a, uh, you know, one of those endlessly depressing photographs of a four-year-old child dead on the streets of Warsaw, and people walking past. And I think that's the sort of world that Lear enters, that the play enters. Um, where death becomes. Um, the amazing thing about Shakespeare is that he, he, he can do that, can't he? That, that taught the uh, blinding scene. It always seems to be, in whatever production I've ever seen, it, it's, it's always horrific. And it's, and it's horrific because for some reason, by that stage of the play and because it's being written by a genius, it somehow represents every single regime based on torture that's ever existed. So. They all come flooding into your head. It's not just, a, it's not just the blinding of a, a single man. Mm. Two areas that, that that's just sort of opened up. We'll, we'll get to the, the daughters very shortly. But uh, to talk a little bit about this interior world of Lear and the idea of him not really wishing to share with the fool, he doesn't really share much with the audience. No, because it's soliloquised. Uh, uh, and, and I would imagine when you're approaching a huge Shakespearean role like this, you would imagine a soliloquy arriving at some point or other. Do you miss that communion with the audience? Is the storm scene an opportunity to commune with the audience? Is it something you're aware of? No. <laughs> 
<laughs> Actually, just slightly, because, of course, he, the, the third speech in the storm scene is about uh, uh, anybody who's got any guilty secrets. Uh, your time has come, uh, which you, is always quite fun to do to the audience, <laughs> and to him. Uh, the... Uh, uh, This, the lack of soliloquies, of course, I mean, I'm fascinated by, as, as any actor who's done a lot of Shakespeare always is, is fascinated about soliloquies and about why they're there for a particular function and why people stop. And I'm sure some of you have heard me talk before will, will know that I find it fascinating when people stop soliloquizing, why Hamlet stops. The greatest soliloquizer of all stops talking to the audience. Why Iago stops. They almost all do at some point in the play. Which the third stops, and there are various reasons which you can sort of find in your head about why that happens. You know that Hamlet, uh, after he goes to England and comes back, he's a different man. There's some something magical has happened to him where he's calm and doesn't need the audience anymore. Iago, as I've said before, simply gets too busy. There's <laughs> no time to talk to the audience. You've, 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 and since he has an absolute contempt for the audience in the first place, it's not. A, is not a great loss to Iago. Um, Richard III stops soliloquizing basically when he becomes king. And it's not as much fun as he thought it was going to be. Um, and then he has the famous soliloquy before the Battle of Bosworth. Um, and a, a very great director, who actually happens to be married to Regan, um, in our production called Roger Michel once said to me, uh, cast, cast the audience in a role for soliloquies, and I think he said he got it from someone else, which is very useful, you know, that uh, Hamlet needs friends, Iago has contempt, um, Richard III is leader of the gang, whatever, whatever, I've said all this before, but, but uh, Lear, Lear, I'm sorry, simply doesn't need the audience. I mean, partly because this is a man who has needed, assumed he needed nobody for most of his life, uh, and also because his brain's going. And I'm sure that's why he, 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 he knows that, he knows he can't communicate properly. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? I, I wonder, I don't know whether anybody's done any, any uh, numerical, you know, number crunching on this, but there are so many unfinished sentences in Lear. The most famous one being, I, no, you are natural hags, I will have such revenges on you both that all the world shall... I will do such things what they are, yet I know not, but they shall be the terrors of the earth. But there are loads of them. Can't finish the sentence. Can't, oh, I don't know what the word is. Um, so that's an interesting uh, game that uh, Shakespeare's playing. You know, I don't think he'd be capable of talking to the audience, is what I'm saying, for half the play. Um, let's talk a little bit about the, the daughters and the, the um, interpretation of that and the relationships that, that in this production Lear has with his daughters. Obviously Cordelia is his favourite, it says so very clearly in the text, but one of the preconception smashing moments for me was, was actually from the first Talking Lear platform about, about the daughters, where before I'd seen this production, that actually most of Lear's abuse is towards Goneril yeah. and actually 
I, he I'm doesn't ins- he d- he doesn't insult Reagan no. at all. Not at all. Um, and so, I, I, but yet there is particularly in, in this production and in Anna Maxwell Martin's portrayal a, a particular sexuality about the relationship there. Could you talk a little about yeah. the about uh, the, the, uh, the three uh, relationships? Uh, it, that was a preconception breaking thing for me. I hadn't realised that all his venom goes to Goneril. And um, that's fascinating, isn't it? Why one child gets it. Uh, and Kate, who is the most beautiful woman uh, in life, I look at her in the first scene and I see tight, controlled, and judgmental as so many children are of their parents. Uh, and he, say, he says to her, doesn't he, you're, you're always frowning. Just stop frowning. And I, I think there's a sort of, uh, there's a very strange thing that happened early on in the rehearsal about the idea that he doesn't like her. And I'm still, I, I'm still clinging on to that a bit. He, he loved as far as his, his definition of love works. You know, he says, you're my child, my daughter, and, and, but he doesn't like her. He doesn't like her company. He doesn't... When, she kept, when he's having fun with the night, she comes in and she's all... You know. Whereas Regan, in some sort of instinctive, I suspect, way, just makes him laugh. I mean... I think he would say, you know, she's not my favourite, but she's, she makes him laugh. She's sassy and funny, and, and he doesn't take her seriously, really. Goneril he takes very seriously, but really doesn't take her seriously. You know. and, uh, and, of course, <laughs> ironically, she's the one who proves to be bordering on psychopathic. Uh, uh, but I think that, yeah, that was a... That was a, a a preconception uh, breaking moment. And also it was so wonderful to be able to, to, to know that Shakespeare had l- allowed us to define those three women clearly, you know, that it wasn't too, too similarly evil um, women versus one good woman. They were all different in their various ways. And there is a sense in which Regan is sort of genetically in Anna's performance, sort of genetically programmed to end up blinding somebody and getting some sort of thrill out of it. And, uh, and that Goneril is programmed by her upbringing to be this tight uh, and repressed woman who, of course, Lear's behaviour f- sets her on a path, a spiral of self-loathing, I suppose, basically which spirals her down into a relationship with Edmund and contempt for her husband and all the things that end up in her ki- killing herself, um, for which I, I, would, I would hold Lear responsible. <laughs> it's another, one, another black mark against him. I think he's responsible for Goneril's. She tries. She tries. The, the, um, the amazing scene which ends up with no reason, not the need, is, is so rational on their part, especially Goneril. Please, Dad, you know, just, 
you don't need the nights. We, we can give you nights. We can give you people you can have fun with and they'll all be looked after and they'll be all looked after by the same, um, you know, same command structure. Um, you know, it's, it's perfectly rational. Um, Regan, if, if he'd spotted it, is slightly less rational. She goes, oh, yeah, you don't need any of them. You know, you don't, you know she, she's a little bit more careless of his feelings. But Gonrel, Gonrel does try. She really tries. And she comes, she swallows the insults and she comes back and goes. And this, uh, this, that's a pattern that we must all be familiar with um, about ageing parents and various other things. You know, come back, try again. And recalcitrant children, of course. But um, So I, I think uh, that... Uh, What's so astonishing about the way that scene ends is that, and I didn't, hadn't realised how brilliant that speech, A Reason Not the Need is, partly because it's, again, not got two broken, three or four broken thoughts, but two, or, uh, two broken sentences where he can't complete his thought, is that he's, it's the most brilliant idea, isn't it? I cannot rationalise, as you have done to me so brilliantly that I am now defeated, I cannot rationalise to you my need of something irrational. It's the most <coughs> despairingly brilliant speech. I can't put into words why I need a hundred nights. It doesn't make sense. And I accept that you make sense. <laughs> no. And for Cordelia, I mean, have you answered the question for yourself, why is Cordelia his favourite, or do you just accept that in the text Cordelia is his favourite? I I, yes, I, I suppose I just say she is. Because I mean, that's all she, you need to play the she's scene. a chip off the old block, as we know. I mean, that, that first scene doesn't show it. <laughs> um, but I think, yes, I've sort of just accept that that is unfortunately the case, that he just loves one of them without, um, without conditions, whereas the other two, um, it's a more complicated relationship. I saw, um, now, who is it I was talking to? Somebody came and saw the play, or, or I was talking about it, and talking about the scene I was having difficulty with, the, the, the one about the prison. And um, it was a, uh, a friend of mine, I can't, I can't remember who it was now, but who had, a, um, who had daughters, who had children. And he said, um, oh, it's like that marvellous moment as the father of a daughter, when they're about 15, and suddenly you're talking to them as sort of equals, you know, that you're talking, yeah, it's that really. And I thought that was a lovely note about that, about that dream that he has of prison, that it's, it's the sheer joy of knowing that this creature is now on your level, I suppose, or you're on her level or whatever. And then that day, I was walking around London, I saw a man walking with his, she must have been about 16, I suppose, chatting away. <laughs> and I thought, that's Leah and Cordelia. It's, she's, she's just the child that he's always just, just talked to. It's, you know, it's been fine. It's always just talking. Whereas, you know, Regan's <laughs> silly. <laughs> <laughs> 
the scene, uh, which I believe you call the, the mad scene on the sort of fake cliff of Dover, is really the, the poetic centre of, of the play and, and uh, beautiful in the staging scene, as well. It's extraordinary. It? Um, and so how I do Shakespeare, hope you... How did Shakespeare dare? Do you think, I mean, can I always imagine him going up to the, you know, the king's men and going, oh, what a marvellous idea of this man who throws himself off a cliff on completely flat ground and think, you know, <laughs> no, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lunatic idea, <laughs> and it is always it, it is always the the most precious scene in the play. I think it's just marvelous. And I played Edgar years ago. Marvelous, marvelous, marvelous scene. Yeah, anyway, um, and and Leah's appearance in that. I do hope you'll share with the audience what Nicholas de Jong said about your appearance in that scene. Um, and uh, and then can't remember um, what he said now. Uh, I, be I believe Is he described you as an ageing transvestite Ophelia. <laughs> he meant it complimentarily, I think. He did. He was. <laughs> <laughs> he did. Um, Actually, he did say rather sweet. He said uh, about the descent that he hadn't seen such a severe descent, and I, thought I was very pleased with that. You know, the. It's all, it's awful, it's awful, it's awful scene in lots of ways, you know. But I love the hospital gown. I think it just just says what it says, you know. It says he's also did. Uh, I don't know whether you know. I was wearing the fool's hat, but uh, yeah, all good. I'm glad people get. It. Is is there is there a pressure on that scene? Are you aware of that going into the rehearsal room? Does the circle make that daunting? Does it help? Are there lots of suggestions just to... Well, actually, oddly enough, that scene has never changed. That was, uh, it was the one I was terrified of, so I learnt it quite carefully. And, and, and also, I, when I played Edgar, this is about memory, I played it for the great Robert Stevens, and it was his last show, and I remembered every single intonation he did. The one because I must have listened to it 80 times, playing Edgar. I remember every single thing he did which I don't remember of the other scenes, actually, uh, partly because I wasn't in them. But um, <laughs> that scene, I just, it was absolutely in my head, and still is. In fact, there was one mistake he made that I, I rather prefer to um, regulate. It was a tiny little a that rather than a thou, and, um, and I'm always been rather tempted to do it like that because that was the way Robert did it. Um, and uh, so I'd learned it very, very carefully, and I think I, the members of the cast... I might be able to support me on this, but I, I, I think it was basically a sort of just, uh, just ran through it. I mean, there's not, there's not much one could do. You know, there was, you know, there's one place to sit and there are two people to talk to, and it's not... And I think in an odd way, that was a scene that... Oh, I, I know the big thing about it before I did it. I didn't want to mime anything. I was very, very... I, I'm a t terrible mimer for a start, so I thought... <laughs> really inflicting that, that on an audience and me going, it's a piece of cheese. <laughs> um, wouldn't work. So, and there's also something slightly cute about it. I, I uh, was worried about that. And it, and it, the, the, the scene has a sort of tendency to be cute anyway. Um, anyway, so I didn't want to mime. So what I wanted was for everything to have, except for the mouse, of course, um, everything to have uh, an actual thing. So the G and the assistant had happened to have a banana there, so that became the cheese. And and I wanted a paper so I could have um, 
a proclamation for Gloss to read. And then, of course, I thought, page three, girl, for the, um, the, the dame, simpering dame. Um, and so everything had, and the, you know, the press money was flowers, which he'd got from his hotel bedside. And so that led on to the plastic bag. And I had this, I imagined him you know, sneaking out of the hospital and just piling what he needed into the bag. And it's quite important that there are more things in the bag than he mimes, you know. So it doesn't look like I have a sort of bag of mime, you know, <laughs> things. You know, there's a bottle of water. And there, there should have been a toothbrush. I don't know where that went. Um, but, you know, there should be more things in it than, than I use. So I, I think that's what I pre-prepared pre for it. And then we just did it, and I, I'd sort of, it's sort of remained fairly steady. I mean, I'm sure Sam, I know Sam gave me notes, but it's, it is a monologue, essentially, um, except for Gloucester's rather, America's rather marvellous interventions. Um, well, we started at the beginning, we end appropriately enough at the end. I'm so sorry, I know there are a lot of questions, but um, Simon's obviously done a matinee, we want you to be able to get home. Thank you very much. Please join me in thanking Simon Russell Beer.